I sat there and watched my ship perform for a mass of circuits and relays and felt useless, unneeded. To Captain Denzel. To James T. Kirk, captain of the Enterprise. Bridge to all deaths. Make way for the M5 Multitronic Unit on Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris, but this might be the last time you hear from me because I think my role as co-host on this podcast might be replaced by a computer. That would never happen, but joining us, we are welcoming back for the third time our very special guest. He was the associate producer on Star Trek Enterprise, and especially for the sake of this episode, he was the visual effects producer on the remastered Star Trek, the original series. Welcome back for the third time. My good friend, Dave Rossi. Thank you guys for having me. Always, always, always a pleasure to be with you guys. So, so Dave, you know, when we first reached out to you and had you on for the for Court Martial, we said, what other episodes do you want to come back for? And you said the Doomsday Machine, which we had you back for. And yep. you also said the Ultimate Computer, which is what we have you back for. So what is it about the Ultimate Computer that you love. There's a couple of things I, I love about this episode. Uh, the first one is uh, William Marshall's uh, uh, portrayal of Daystrom. I, I, I just think he so gets that character and what and what they were going for in this kind of genius slow descent into kind of madness. Is uh, I think I just think it's so subtle and, and brilliant. I, I've always loved that performance. The second thing is um, this kind of it doesn't pit the Enterprise against Kirk, but but it removes his connection to the Enterprise. And and I think that's a really uh, a fascinating place for Kirk to be. Um, you know, the, the Enterprise is a character. And, and I, I dare say in a lot of the, the later series, um, the ships are not characters. You know, they're they're these things that the crew is on. But. But to me, the original series Enterprise was always a, a character. And, uh, you know, I, it's funny. I, I didn't cry when Spock died, but I cried when the Enterprise blew up. And, me too. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I guess I kind of knew that uh, that Spock would be back, but I couldn't believe that they would blow up the Enterprise. I felt <laughs> the same way. Yep. yep. <laughs> so um, so anyway, there was there, there's that uh, connection. But also... Uh, boy, you get to see other starships. And to me, that as a kid, uh, whenever the Enterprise was able to encounter other um, factions from Starfleet, I, I just loved the, those moments. And in the remastered, to be able to kind of play around with uh, with what's going on with those ships was just really a, a super highlight for me. You know, when I I, I, I got to say, when I was rewatching this, you know, when I was thinking about you and Mike Akuda and Denise Akuda, you know, to be able to, you know, work your magic on the ultimate computer, you know, you must have really been like, ooh, this is going to be fun. Yeah, it, it was really fun. And, and it was really challenging because, you know, as you know, we couldn't really change the length of any of these cuts. So whatever we did had to fit in the existing slots of the original visual effects. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, listen, I, when you do a project like this, you, we're incredibly proud of it. Don't get me wrong, but it, it's never 
perfect or, or what, you know, if we would have had more time and more money, um, you know, the ability to kind of damage those ships when the enterprise attacks them and to see, you know, plasma coming off them. And I mean, there's so many things we had planned, but the ships always re remain pristine because we just didn't have the time to, to affect those kinds of changes. But, but that was something that, that we, we, uh, we kind of missed the boat on that. I wish we would have had time to address, but you know, you take what you can get, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I remember being really excited when I saw this for the first time, the remastered version. Steve, how about you? Like, where do you hold uh, the ultimate computer in, in your regard? It, it, it's funny. I've always it's all, I've always liked the episodes for some of the same reasons that Dave said. What's interesting is as we've gone on this journey, there have been some episodes that have gone up in my estimation. And there's some episodes like last week's that actually went down in my estimation. This one is really interesting because emotionally i felt very different about it watching it this time because of how we've been watching the show and the world keeps changing and so how technologically this applies to our world today is very different today than it was just like three years ago it's very different so i had a very different experience watching it you know it's what's funny about uh, the ultimate computer is you know this episode aired for the first time on march 8 1968 and at the time it was relevant you know, for automation, people losing their jobs. And that's still relevant for technological advances that are making people lose their jobs. It's a it's another Star Trek episode that has stayed relevant and has taken on new meaning as the times have changed. Just like an episode like, you know, a private little war for the same reason has uh, gained greater relevance because of everything that's been happening in Ukraine. So so this is an episode that I've always really, really enjoyed. Uh, I think there is a lot going on here. In addition to just a you know, great pace, lots of action, adventure, and excitement. You know, you got space battles between the Enterprise and other starships that look just like it. But you also have great drama, great conflict. You also have so much going on with man versus machine and also man versus himself. And within the banner of man versus himself. It's Kirk versus uh, Daystrom, and it's also Daystrom versus Daystrom, and Kirk versus Kirk because of just this this loss of identity that Kirk is facing. And Dave, you know what you said about the Enterprise being a character. If the only other ship that I felt like was a character in its world was the Millennium Falcon. In The Empire Strikes Back, the Millennium Falcon is a character, okay? And in the original series and certainly the first couple of movies, the Enterprise is a character. And you're right, especially with the later shows, I never got the sense that the, some of the other starships are characters like the Enterprise was in the original series. And that's because just Kirk loves the Enterprise. And this goes back to the naked time when he's infected uh, with the disease and he's in the briefing room saying, now I know why it's called she, never lose you. And now he's going to lose her. So there's a lot to tie into. And this episode was directed by John Meredith Lucas, who by this point in the second season was also the showrunner after Gene Kuhn left the series. It was written by Dorothy D.C. Fontana from a story by Lawrence N. Wolf. Lawrence N. Wolf. So 
this is an interesting story. This is his only TV credit anywhere. You look him up on IMDb, his one and only credit is the ultimate computer, and he got a story by credit. Now, Wolf had never sold the screenplay. He was a mathematician who had a special interest and fascination in computers. So how did this guy get his, his script to Gene Roddenberry? Well, it's who you know in Hollywood. So Wolf was really good friends with Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury was really good friends with Gene Roddenberry. So Bradbury handed Wolf's script to Roddenberry, and Roddenberry really liked it. And also, Roddenberry was really trying to get Ray Bradbury to write a Star Trek script, which never happened, unfortunately. So Wolf submitted his spec script. And by the way, Dave, what is a spec script? So uh, we would get thousands of spec scripts when I was on working in Next Generation and the, and the run of those uh, subsequent shows. Uh, that's that's somebody without an agent who submits a script uh, in hopes that that it'll get through and, and get going. And Michael Piller, who's an executive producer and ran the writing team on Next Generation, started um, and, and was kind of a, a pioneer to, to the chagrin of many lawyers, uh, <laughs> uh, started a process that was an open submission process. So spec scripts came in all the time. And this is where you choose a series you like and you write a script and you send it in and, and hope that it gets picked. So he wrote his spec script that was received by the Star Trek offices on October 13th, 1967. So he was given notes by the, by the producers. So he submitted his revised first draft teleplay on November 9th. So here's where the story gets interesting. So in Wolf's original script, it focused on Daystrom and the M5. And the producers, especially Dorothy Fontana, were like, well, what about our characters? What about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and so on? So she did a full, heavy rewrite, and she did an act a day on her rewrite. So she did the teaser and act one on December 1st, act two on December 2nd, act three on December 3rd, and act four on December 4th. And then she did a second rewrite and revised draft on December 5th and 6th. And she actually requested to get a full written by credit, and that relegated Wolf to a story by credit. He wasn't happy about it, but that is Hollywood, and that is how uh, this guy got a credit. You know, he still has a credit well, on the track. It's, it's his story, but it's her script. Exactly. And it definitely is, especially when you see the episode and you hear the dialogue and you see how personal a story like The Ultimate Computer really is. But like I said, the episode aired on March 8th, 1968. It was the 53rd episode to air. It was the 54th episode to film. And it was shot on schedule in six days between December 7th and December 14th. It was also around $6,000 under budget came in total cost $176,451. And for the last few episodes we've done here on Enterprise Incidents, now that Star Trek was under the gun from Paramount, not Desilu, they really tightened the screws to bring these episodes on schedule and, and if possible, under budget, which they were. Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world when they made this episode? Absolutely. Uh, well, the first thing is on December 7th, Otis Redding recorded arguably his most popular and most famous song in San Francisco, which, of course, is Dock of the Bay. 
which is one of the great, great songs of all time. And then I have, and this one, I don't know, Scott, it's a bit of Beatles news. I certainly wouldn't have come up with it. This is December 7th, 1967. Do you have any thoughts on it? It's a little bit more obscure. Uh, December 7th, 1967. No, I, I don't have anything on this one. This is when the Apple Boutique opened at 94 Baker Street in London. This was Apple's attempt to have like a store to sell things along the Apple brand. And it's um, one of many things uh, uh, when they were doing Apple that just was, uh, they had great intentions with it, but it just yep. didn't work out. <laughs> On December 8th, Operation Yellowstone b- began in Vietnam. This was a huge offensive. It continued through February. There were 137 U.S killed and 1170 north vietnamese killed and then and i you know again we have another beatles thing and last week i asked you and you came up with the answer which was that in the last episode magical mystery tour was released but it was released in the u.s before it was released in the uk it was released in the uk on december 8th uh this one's very uh tragic going forward which is on december 9th nicholas ceausescu was elected quote unquote, elected the new president of Romania. This was a terrible, terrible, truly scary dictator. He ruled until 1989. This one is also tragic and completely bizarre. On the same day, December 9th, in Evansville, Indiana, 2,000 kids get together to see Santa Claus, who is going to fly in on a Hughes 3000 helicopter. And that helicopter clipped two power lines and crashed right in front of them, killing the pilot and Santa. Whoa. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, my That's God. That's awful. Right? That's tragic. I, yep. <laughs> just, like, so horrible. I can't even believe it. Oh, my mind. gosh. Uh, uh, on the same day, uh, this also might have, uh, you know, seared people's memories. Jim Morrison was arrested on stage in New Haven, Connecticut for indecent exposure. Uh, he was later released and fined 25 bucks. 25 uh, bucks? That's it? Yep. Yep. <laughs> wow. Uh, Linda Bird Johnson was married at the White House. This is, I think, only the third wedding at the White House. Um, another thing that happened this on this day, and this is still December 9th, is that it was confirmed that birds can fly at super high altitudes in super cold weather. A pilot saw 30 swans flying at 26,900 feet at a temperature of 54 below zero. That's really interesting. Isn't that, that nuts? That's crazy. <laughs> I had no idea. And then, and this is December 10th, three days after recording arguably his greatest and most famous song, 26-year-old Otis Redding died along with four other people when the plane they f- were flying in crashed into Lake Manoa in Wisconsin. So, yeah. wow. So he died just a few days after recording that song? Yep. Never saw it released. I never knew. I never knew that. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. He was 26. Jeez. Oh, I mean, God. you, yeah, I mean, you think of like, I t- try a little tenderness is one of, I think one of the greatest songs ever done of all time. I love Doc of the Bay too. The fact that it was a, a guy in his early twenties who did try a little tenderness is insane to me. Um, and, and this is the craziest thing too, right at the same time, on the same day, I believe, the British music publication Melody Maker, which we heard a lot if you know about the Beatles, Melody Maker was really important. It listed Redding as the world's number one vocalist displacing Elvis on the same day. That oh, died. wow. Oh, that's that's awful. Mm. Isn't that crazy? Here's another one I'd never heard of, which is 
Project Gasbug, which was the first commercially sponsored nuclear test. And it took place underground in New Mexico. It was a 29 kiloton bomb, and it was designed to improve natural gas extraction. To fracture rock formations to get more natural gas, we're going to use a nuclear bomb. Wow. Needless to say, that is not something that continued. Um, On December 11th, the supersonic airliner, the Concorde, was introduced. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, And that is what was going on when they were making the ultimate computer. Damn. Wow. Wow. You know, one thing about the air date of the ultimate computer on March 8th, this is about a month before probably one of the top five greatest science fiction movies of all time. Uh, a, a movie that also deals with a, a ship run by a computer that turns to murder to preserve itself opened in theaters. It's so funny, Scott, because I have that in my notes that it's on uh, April 2nd. So it's less than a month later that 2001 is released. But I was certain that you were going to say it. So I kept it to myself. Oh, wow. <laughs> but isn't that amazing how within like basically like less than four weeks apart, Star Trek is on TV and 2001 A Space Odyssey is in theaters and they are both dealing with the exact same things. Unbelievable. Yeah, Star true. Trek beat to the punch. <laughs> um, shall we? Uh, well, and what's really crazy is that Star Trek shot it like a couple, three months earlier and released it. <laughs> 2001 was shot like three years earlier yeah, and it's right. just releasing it now. Uh, shall we get into the film, into the episode? Let's do it. Standard order, Captain. I'm now listening. Lieutenant, contact the space station. So rewatching this episode, you know, for all these years that I watched The Ultimate Computer, the footage of the Enterprise approaching the Starbase was obviously, of course, it was Space Station K-7 from The Trouble with Tribbles. But watching, you know, this was, and this was so great to see it, like the very first thing that you see for The Ultimate Computer is a new shot of the Enterprise approaching a Starbase that looks very, very different from K-7. So... So, Dave, what was behind the redesign of the Starbase for the new version of the Ultimate Computer? Well, you know, we realized that K7 was not, it's not a Starfleet installation, as it's described in the show. So why would Starfleet be using K7? Um, So, you know, I don't quite remember where the design came from, but I know Mike uh, Okuda had some some input into it, you know, he's got, he's so plugged in to to all of these things, but, uh, but yeah, we were really happy to do that. And another little tiny thing that I I like about this is as the enterprise slows its approach, you see the impulse engines turn off, Yes, which, uh, uh, which is fun. And and the impulse engines were always a, a, a kind of itching powder to me as we were doing this, because there are so many cases where the enterprise is leaving orbit of a planet and the impulse engines aren't on and it drives me crazy. But it's it's one of those things that we just uh, uh, time didn't allow us to go back and, and repair. But uh, but yeah, so we're and we're really proud of the Starbase, and I think it's really I think it's really fun because it does it it it, it takes that K seven thing right out. Well, Mike Okuda definitely was plugged in because the redesign of the station, it's actually a Watchtower class Starbase, which was basically from like, you know, fan fiction kind of thing. And it became canon. Captain Kirk, this is Commodore Enright. And that voice is James Dillon. Of course it is. 
Yes, Commodore, I'd like an explanation. The explanation is beaming aboard now, Captain. He may already be in your transporter room. Um, and so we head down to the transporter room, and there we see Commodore Wesley. Commodore Bob Wesley, played by Barry Russo. Of course, he looks familiar because he was Lieutenant Commander Giotto in one of the greatest Star Trek episodes of all time, The Devil in the Dark. And I thought he was great as that security chief in Devil in the Dark. I love that line. He goes, uh, uh, Vandenberg and his men are here and they're pretty ugly. <laughs> but uh, he was also uh, played a heavy on shows like The Untouchable, 77 Sunset Strip. He was on Mission Impossible, uh, The FBI, and Hawaii Five-0. And we, would, we will see a Wesley again uh, in the animated series episode, One of Our Planets is Missing. And just a little FYI, Bob Wesley, Robert Wesley. So when Gene Roddenberry was serving with the LAPD and he was writing for Dragnet, he wrote sometimes under his pen name, which was Robert Wesley. Coincidence? I love Russo's performance when he meets Spock. It's a total look of admiration. Like I get, Mm. I'm meeting Spock here and, and it's as if Spock's reputation precedes him, you know, because he says, Oh, this is, this is Mr. Spock. And Wesley says, hello, Mr. Spock. And he's got this grin on his face. Like, so this is Spock. It's really just a, you know, I'm sure it wasn't played that way. Uh, consciously but it it comes across that way and i love those little those little moments yeah it's great it's great because like you know you you realize just how lucky the enterprise is to have spock (laughs) yeah and we also see wesley uh he's sporting that insignia which uh, signifies starbase duty um so you know you can surmise i think that he is in temporary command of the lexington and, oh. uh, commanding that battle fleet everyone around him and i watched through the episode it's interesting everyone in the background on the bridge of the lexington never turns towards us to see the front of their tunics but um but if they would have they would have all had enterprise style insignias or they should have because they're on starship duty but wesley is the only one wearing that that starbase uh insignia and that's the same insignia that uh stalker is wearing in the deadly years. That's right. And Commodore uh-huh. Stone. Ah, yes. Commodore Stone. Right. Yes. This is, this is why we have you guys, because I will miss all of these things. <laughs> you mind telling me what this is all about? I receive orders to proceed here. No reason given. I'm informed that my men will be removed to the space station to a security holding area. I think I'm entitled to an explanation. You've had a singular honor conferred on you, Jim. You're going to be the fox in the hunt. Uh, there's going to be war games and that he is going to the enterprise is going to host something called the m5 multitronic unit which is created by dr richard daystrom and and what i would like to point out is this is a a technique that totally works but uh, but isn't doesn't always quite make sense which is of course they would have told kirk ahead of time that this thing was going to happen they wouldn't wait until the last possible second to tell him what was going on this would all be planned in advance but it makes for it more dramatic that's uh Dr. Richard Daystrom's device, isn't it? The most ambitious computer complex ever created. Its purpose is to correlate all computer activity aboard a starship to provide the ultimate in vessel operation and control. So here's what I've learned and gained by doing these deep dives. So when I go back and rewatch the episode to prepare and take notes, I watch it with the subtitles on. Hmm. Because sometimes I don't quite understand what they're saying or... Or, you know, if they're, if they're saying a planet or a new mineral, 
I want to make sure I get the exact mineral right or whatever. But in this case, the purpose that Spock says to correlate all computer activity aboard a starship to provide the ultimate in vessel operation and control, I never really got that line before until I rewatched it. And I'm like, oh, so that's like the ultimate purpose here. So it's it's amazing how you see new things after all these decades watching the same show over and over again. And we wouldn't have got that exposition unless Spock had an A7 computer classification exactly. rating. Exactly, which is a really high, very high rating. <laughs> I'm well acquainted with Dr. Daystrom's theories and discoveries. The basic design of all our ship's computers are Dr. Daystrom's. And we go through that there's going to be a bunch of research problems and contact problems and then war games if the m5 works under actual conditions as well as it has under simulated tests it will mean a revolution in space technology as great as warp drive why choose kirk for this well that's a great question good question that is a great question my my... Is is it a reflection of him being the best and they want to see what this computer can do in replace in 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 uh, you know, uh, in replacement of the best. Okay, so here's here's a thought that I don't think is what they were thinking, but I think it, it it fits into what we've been doing on the podcast, which is if we say that Kirk is like the youngest captain, and if in court martial we see all the resentment towards Kirk, and we know that he's going to get called Captain Dunsell, which is insulting. I think it's the opposite. They wanted to take Kirk down a notch. Oh, that's wow. why they're doing this to him. Interesting. That is an interesting take, and. What happened in that episode? Everyone turned on him in, in court martial. Well, in, oh, in in court martial, he exonerates himself. But it well, was it was a it was a it was a computer glitch. Oh, right, that's right, right. And they a, take all and they take all the crew off the Enterprise. Right. So so I think it's definitely a little little bit of both. And Kirk, I think, is definitely revered because he is the youngest, and he's he's also I think he's seen as the best. Certainly. Years after the five-year mission, he's certainly revered as the best. But I think there's a little bit of like Schadenfreude uh, going on here among other people in Starfleet. Like, let's let's really stick it to Captain Kirk here. Dr. Daystrom will see to the installation himself, and he'll supervise the tests. When he's ready, you'll receive your orders and proceed on the mission with a crew of 20. 20? I can't run a starship with 20 crew. The M5 can. And guess what? Captain Kirk can run a starship with 20 people. In fact... Captain Kirk can run a starship with six people, and we saw that happen in Star Trek Three when he stole the Enterprise to resurrect Spock. <laughs> That's a great, great point. Kirk's kind of immediate reaction during this scene, obviously he's bothered by it. He's bothered by the prospect of this. Do you think that's because of his experiencing of his experience with other malfunctioning AI, or do you think it's uh, his immediate feeling of Oh, they're saying I'm unneeded for this. Well, uh, or, or somewhere in between, I guess. Maybe a little six of one, half dozen of the other. Uh, and that, by the way, that six of one, half dozen of the other—that's a lot. Because first of all, absolutely, you know, we we know how much Kirk loves his ship, uh, and when you when you just hear certain parts of his dialogue, like in Arena, when when Sulu says, "Hey, we could drop screens to beam you up," and Kirk like shoots back, uh, "Never mind about me. Protect my ship." And, you know, again, going back to just seeing how vulnerable he felt at the prospect of losing the Enterprise in the naked time. And now here he is faced with losing the Enterprise. And this is the half dozen of the other, Dave, is that it's to a computer, not to another 
person, but to a computer, computers which, you know, one computer, the enterprise's own computer, even though it wasn't the fault of the enterprise, but, you know, uh, it was, uh, you know, just- It was used against him. It was used against him. But then after seeing computers, uh, uh, the computers cannot be trusted, like in Return of the Archons and certainly in The Changeling. So- it's a, there's a lot that comes flooding back to Kirk at this moment. He's like, uh, no wonder he gets a red alert back there. It never occurred to me that it was his previous bad experience with computers that, that would be doing some of this, but that makes perfect sense. But to me, it's always been his identity as captain of the Enterprise is being threatened. And what am I supposed to do? You've got a great job, Jim. All you have to do is sit back and let the machine do the work. And that sort of, you know, eating grin on Wesley's face. So at this point, you know, when I was doing the rewatch, I was thinking like, doesn't Wesley know that he's also sort of in trouble here? But then again, you know, Dave, I never, I never thought about that. Maybe he was just looking, he was in temporary command of the Lexington to carry out the war games because he was a Commodore. And, uh, He's probably not as attached to, obviously not as attached to the Lexington as Kirk is to the Enterprise. So this is the end of the teaser. And what the one thing I want to point out before we move forward is that this is a classic story, is that this is the story of being placed, replaced by the machine. And that this goes back to, probably we could trace it back to the Industrial Revolution, but the big one that sticks in my mind is John Henry. John Henry's a steel driving man and the big machine is going to come and can do it better than humans. And he fights to the death, literally to the death to defeat the machine. And what's so interesting to me about the story is that even though John Henry wins, really the machine wins and that throughout history, the machines, the level that the machine can take over for keeps going up with John Henry. It's just can do more than muscle than human muscle. Right. But, but we're going to move up in that direction over time. I don't like it, Jim. A vessel this size cannot be run by one computer. We are attempting to prove that it can run this ship more efficiently than man. And this, you know, we're into a classic Spock-McCoy argument here. You know, the, the, the thing about Dorothy Fontana is that next to Gene Kuhn, she was definitely Star Trek's best writer. And with uh, Gene Kuhn gone by this point, even though he would still submit scripts to Star Trek on, on, in the third season under his pseudonym, Lee Cronin, thank goodness Star Trek still had Fontana because yeah. all of this- Character moments. Yeah, yeah, these character moments. And I never realized just how great these character moments are in this episode. And here's some levity- you know, usually that came from Kuhn. This time it comes from Fontana. And it's that just that classic dynamic, the Kirk, Spock, McCoy dynamic, especially between Spock and McCoy here, sort of the ribbing uh, that uh, that they, they take from each other. But again, they they respect each other still, of course. Maybe you're trying to prove that, Spock, but don't count me in on it. The most unfortunate lack in current computer programming is that there is nothing available to immediately replace the starship surgeon. And what's interesting is as they exit the turbo lift and walk down the corridor to engineering, this is all done in one complete take, which is something that they really didn't do a whole lot in the original show. Yeah, yeah this yeah. is a fairly long, what we would see all the time in shows like The West Wing, this is a very long, what you call a walk and talk. 
By the way, so as I said, more and more sophisticated machines are replacing humans in all sorts of ways. And Spock is making a joke about them replacing the surgeon. Well, we live in the world of AI today. And one of the places AI has been extremely successful is in medical stuff, in particular, diagnosing images from x-rays and MRIs and uh, CAT scans is that AI has shown more and more that it is better than humans. Wow. So these are sophisticated intellectual jobs that you had to go to school and get very high level degrees in order to do them. And this is an area where now, nope, the machine might be better. Uh, actually, even in the world of Star Trek, that actually did happen in the 24th century on, on the Starship Voyager. A computer did replace the ship's surgeon because we had uh, Bob Picardo. If it could, they wouldn't have to replace me. I'd resign because everybody else aboard would be nothing but circuits and memory banks. <laughs> you know the type, Spock. <laughs> and what's interesting is Kirk has been silent this whole time. Jim, you haven't had much to say about this. What do you want me to say? M5? It's an honor, they tell me. Well, I'm honored. <laughs> Which, of, of course, he's not. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, so the door opens to engineering, and uh, Kirk is looking around for Daystrom, and Scotty says, oh, he's over there. And you hear this bellowing, yes! Yes! And then you see this giant man stand up, and that is William Marshall, who... Best known, I think, is probably his most famous uh, role is as Blackula in the 1970s exploitation film and its follow-up, Scream, Blackula, Scream. He was also in the film Maverick, and on TV he was in Danger Man, Secret Agent, Tarzan, The Man from Uncle, and he was the king of cartoons on Pee-wee's Playhouse. Mm. But back in 1967, when this episode was filmed, so this is just one season after Court Martial, where we had Percy Rodriguez playing Commodore Stone. And he was a black man cast as a Commodore. Just no attention is made to the fact that he is a black man. He's just a man in this position of power. And that was very, very rare to, to do this in the late 1960s at the height of the civil rights movement. And here you have a rare part for a black man in a position of power and authority on TV. Well, the episode aired in 1968, but it was filmed in 1967. And I just think that that was really great that it doesn't matter. It just, he is who he is, his race, his color, his background. It doesn't matter. It's just, there he is. And this is, this is what he does. Yep. I totally, totally agree. And I think in particular, the fact that he is a boy genius computer expert is a kind of a role that maybe, I mean, he was a boy, he's not a boy genius anymore, but was a boy genius computer expert is the kind of role that you wouldn't see an African-American play. But I also think I'm going to say something which sounds like I'm saying the exact opposite, is that one of the things we see from his character is everybody distrusting him on every single step of the way. And you can feel that he has probably felt this resistance his entire life. You know, because he was a boy genius who as a kid came up with this thing and nobody believed he was capable of doing it. And I bet if you were an African-American sitting at home watching this guy who seems to have to work 
twice as hard to get the same distance, that this would be something that would resonate. So I think it's A, amazing that Star Trek isn't saying anything about his race, and B, amazing that this might have resonated with people who hadn't seen someone like them on screen struggle with some of the things that they're struggling with. That is a great, great point, Steve, because Scotty won't let him hook the M5 mm-hmm. up to the warp engines. Mr. Scott, hook in the multitronic unit to the ship's main power banks. Aye, sir. And of course, you know, McCoy certainly is resistant to this, and of course, Kirk is resistant to this, but, you know, they have their legitimate concerns about this uh, untried computer being hooked into the Enterprise, and then there's the whole thing yep. with Kirk being replaced. But you're watching this in 1968 going, oh, look, 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 they're, they're, they're showing resistance to a black man doing his job. And he's a fascinating character because I don't feel he's powerful. He's obviously brilliant. And I don't know, do we ever feel comfortable with him? Right. He has a really fascinating mix of stature but something under the surface that is just, I don't know what the word is. Uh, I was going to say uncomfortable first, but that's not quite it. But it's, you know, he's obviously this brilliant uh, and he carries himself with just with such stature and, and poise, but there's something underneath that you detect right away. Right away. He's got a, he's got a, he's got an ax to grind. He's got a, a chip on his shoulder. He's, you know, yeah. he's there to prove something. Yeah, it's a combination of true hubris, you know, incredible pride, and as you say, a desperation to prove something. He is desperate for this to succeed. And, yeah, and, you know. absolutely. And he, and he puts that chip. He he puts the chip on 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 his shoulder all by himself, because you know he, you know, this, there's dialogue later that supports this that that he has had so much success at such a young age, and now he's trying to top himself. So he's putting that pressure on himself, and that pressure, as it turns out, winds up being far too great. Is it supposed to do that? If I can be of assistance, Doctor. No, no, no. Thank you. I can manage. Watch Kirk during that scene. He puts his hand on Spock's arm Mm. and then motions to the control panel like, keep an eye on this. You know, it's a I'm not sure what what the performance is, but it's kind of like he's just going, No, 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 you Keep your eyes on this. I want you to. I want you to be in the loop about this in case it goes wrong. Okay, so so I noticed that this time, like I never noticed that before. But when I was rewatching it, I noticed like like Spock like makes a motion and Kirk kind of puts his hand on his uh, his arm. Like so, I thought that Spock was motioning to like help Daystrom, and Kirk was like actually being like, you know what, just let him do his job. Let this guy do his thing. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. But now I got to go back and watch it again. <laughs> uh, just when you thought oh, you were out. Um, <laughs> M5 is ready to take control of the ship. Total control. That is what it was designed for, Captain. And Kirk says in this line, I find very interesting. There are certain things men must do to remain men. It, it's funny because I think despite the fact that obviously Kirk ends up being necessary as the captain of the Enterprise, I think this exposes some real insecurity with him. Certainly. That is not fake. You know, it's really there. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's also him taking Daystrom's measure. There are other things a man like you might do. He doesn't know anything about Kirk. He knows he's the captain of a starship, and that's kind of it. So that comes off a little flippant. Like, it, Kirk is just another speed bump in Daystrom's journey to prove that this next thing is his next greatest achievement so he's very kind of dismissive of 
of Kirk. And I would say it's not just that Daystrom is being somewhat dismissive of Kirk or thinking that he knows what Kirk wants. Is He's downright condescending because he says, Or perhaps you object to the possible loss of the prestige and the ceremony accorded a starship captain. The computer can do your job, and without all that. So he's saying, Kirk, oh, you just like being the big captain. That's what you care about. Yeah. That is a nasty sort of thing to say. Yep. Again, I, I never realized how much this ties back to the briefing room scene in the naked time. Yeah. Uh, at that moment, you know, of course, Kirk is infected and he's, you know, the, the disease acts, acts like you're drunk and it, it exposes your insecurities. But now we are seeing Kirk's insecurities exposed without any outside influence. Like it's like really like like this is a, a real threat and we are seeing Kirk react in a real human way. Who is he if he's not captain of the Enterprise? So so what I love about about Shatner's performance, and Shatner does give a great performance in this episode, is that well clearly He's leery and has every right to be, you know, suspicious about a computer taking full control of the enterprise based on his experiences with computers taking full control of, 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 of entire planets. But he's also very biased here because, like, if this succeeds, he loses his whole purpose. He loses his ship. And who was he? Like there's a whole existential crisis happening here in this episode. There are so many layers to this episode that make the ultimate computer just really stand the test of time as one of Star Trek's very best episodes. You'll have to prove that to me, Doctor. That is what we're here for, isn't it, Captain? And Kirk's snapping his attention back and his eyes narrow, and he's he's got the big picture there. We're in the quarter with McCoy and Kirk, and McCoy says, did you see the love light in Spock's eyes? <laughs> that right computer finally came along. And this is another walk and talk, by the way. And he expects Kirk to joke back in some way, and he doesn't. He's silent. What's the matter, Jim? I think that thing is wrong, and I don't know why. Well, I think it's wrong, too, replacing men with mindless machines. I don't mean that. I'm getting a red alert right here thing is dangerous so i really hadn't been thinking about all the crazy computers that he's worked up against i always interpreted this as well how much is this personal about kirk and how much is this actual feeling the danger but now that you bring up the all the other computers he's dealt with it makes a lot more sense why he's getting a red alert this is actually a uh, an admirable flaw but he is of course worried about his own relevance he also says something that doesn't ring true at all where he says Daystrom was right. I can do a lot of other things. And I don't think he believes that for a second. I think he may want to believe it, but this is his destiny. This is what he is best at. What I think, too, and I'll just say, this isn't a criticism of the episode, but I do feel the episode sets up, because I really like this episode, but it sets up questions that it actually really doesn't answer. Because, spoiler alert, this machine is messed up. This computer is going to do crazy stuff, so we have to stop it. We never really do answer the question or engage the real question of could a computer, a machine, do what Captain Kirk does? We never get that far. Because, and I think all of us who have watched Star Trek know there's no way a computer would come up with the Corvamite maneuver and right. be able to go down to the planet and, you know, save Spock's life in a mock time. And there's just, those things can't happen. Also, the, the other thing is that, you know, in the episode Obsession, 
we we hear Captain Kirk say how intuition is such a necessary part of being a starship captain. And intuition is what ultimately saves the day here. And that's also something that a computer just does not have. We're all sorry for the other guy when he loses his job to a machine. But when it comes to your job, that's different. And it always will be different. And I just think what's interesting about what's happening today is at first it was just strength that was replaced in the John Henry story. And then it was skills, like skilled laborers were being replaced by robots. And now it's brains. Now there's all sorts of, like for another one example is I, I listen to the newspaper every day and Audible used to have a audio version of the New York Times and the Washington Post read by a human. Now I listen to the Washington Post that is a computerized voice. Oh, I didn't know they were doing that. Wow. Yep. Yep. And there's legal, you know, paralegals, that profession's almost going to be gone soon because computers can read contracts better than and faster than paralegals. Like there are sports stories being written by computers. And if you read it, it would read like a human wrote it. There are computers that are writing songs. There's a lot of jobs that we thought only humans can do. That's not true anymore. Well, let me ask you a question. So when you would listen to the news when it was read by a human, and now that you're listening to the news and it's read by a computer, like, do you feel that the impact of hearing the news is not the same being read by a computer? There's no question the human is better. And the way that I notice is that, I mean, you, you, you know me, Scott, I've been listening to, I listen to things at two and a half times speed. I listen to books and podcasts constantly. I have to use more focus to pay attention to the computer voice, there you go. even though it sounds pretty much like a human voice, but it doesn't penetrate as well in my brain. But uh, this is version one, you know, yeah, three yeah. years from now, that's probably not going to be true. Yeah. Am I afraid of losing the prestige and the power that goes with being a starship captain? Is that why I'm fighting? Am I that petty? And I love McCoy's response. Jim, you have the awareness to ask yourself that question. You don't need me to answer it for you. Why don't you ask James T. Kirk? He's a pretty honest guy. With this episode, on top of just all the drama and the conflict and the action and the excitement, and especially, you know, with the new visual effects and everything, ultimately what it comes down to is character. And the Kirk, Spock, McCoy relationship, the way that it is refined here, the dynamic of that relationship is on such a great display here. And especially, I have to say, between Kirk and McCoy, because we have seen situations where Kirk and McCoy go at it, go after each other, uh, lose their temper with each other, like in the Corbomite Maneuver, like in A Private Little War. And then you have moments like in this episode, like in Balance of Terror, the whole scene uh, between Kirk and McCoy in his quarters. And then we're going to see another scene a little bit later on in this episode between Kirk and McCoy in, in Kirk's quarters. So Shatner and DeForest Kelly are just both at the top of their game in this episode. The chemistry between them is just as good as it gets. We're on the bridge. We've done some maneuvers. The M5 has done really well and basic maneuvers. All it's done is make the required course changes in a few simple turns. But the students to check off could have done that with their eyes closed. Yes, but you see, the idea is they didn't have to do it. And you find it won't be necessary for you to regain control of the unit after it's completed each maneuver. Want to hear the crazy thought I had about this? Let's hear it. So later on, M5 is not going to allow them to disengage. It's going to disable, disable the, the switches that disengage. 
Well, is it possible that the M5 didn't like being disengaged at the beginning, that it felt like it was losing control of the Enterprise, and that is why later on it disabled those switches? And isn't that exactly what is happening with Kirk? Kirk doesn't like losing control of the Enterprise, so that the M5 is essentially doing what Kirk wants to do, maintain control of the ship. Absolutely. It is doing exactly what Kirk wants to do. It is doing exactly what the HAL 9000 wind up doing in 2001. It is also what the computer in Superman 3 ends up doing. <laughs> wow. I know. I, I couldn't believe I like, you know, was watching this episode and I started thinking about Superman 3. But anyway, uh, well, look, this computer, as we will learn, is designed with the, with the engrams of Daystrom himself. So it's thinking like a human. It's thinking illogically. And that's the problem. Uh, in this case, is that it's a, the self-preservation that it is it is learning uh, winds up disservicing the people on the ship, and it's a good thing that they're learning this early on with this episode, so it doesn't uh, sort of turn into a situation like you know Return of the Archons. My orders are subject to my interpretation as to how long the M5 is in control, and I'll run the ship in my own way if you don't mind, Doctor Daystrom. Watch Daystrom's reaction to this moment. Totally. There's a lot there. But Spock is on Daystrom's side. The point is to test the M5. You seem to enjoy trusting yourself to the computer, Mr. Spock. Enjoy, Captain? No. I'm merely gratified to see Dr. Daystrom's new unit execute everything required of it in such a highly efficient manner. And then we're heading towards a planet, and the M5 is going to handle establishing the orbit, analyzing the planet, and making a landing party recommendations. And Kirk says, if you don't mind, I'll make my own recommendations. I love Daystrom. Well, you feel you need the exercise? Go on, Captain. Yeah, the way he's so, he, he shakes his head and he's just, yeah. his arms yeah, up. You if you feel you need the exercise, ahead. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is when, you know, Kirk, when they're approaching the, the planet and Kirk says standard orbit. Captain, uh, M5 has calculated that. The orbit is already plotted. Kirk's reaction is just, he's chagrined. He's like embarrassed. He's like, you know, oh, yeah, right. Like, yeah, this yeah, thing's yeah. ahead of me already, yeah. you know? like He's already feeling it. He's already feeling like, wow, yeah. this thing learns fast. Yeah, and it happens many, many times. Um, and one interesting thing I was thinking about is we're in the middle of the space program. Right now, is we're, and we're having to figure out things like orbits, those things where all the math for that was figured out by computers, except for a computer at that time meant a person. They, they, that was a title of a person. If you watched Hidden Figures, yeah. those were the computers that were actually figuring all this stuff out. Crunching those numbers, yeah. And then all of a sudden, a whole bunch of lights go off on one of the decks. Deck four. And Kirk gives his recommendations, which are... We send down a general survey party, avoiding contact of all intelligent life on the planet's surface. The survey party will consist of myself, Dr. McCoy, astrobiologist Phillips, geologist Rollins, and science officer Spock. And then we play the M5 recommendations. And before we do, a bunch more lights go off. Power's gone off on deck five. Now, as a kid, I, I was like, well, that's wrong, because that's Kirk's quarters. Kirk's quarters are on deck five. That's right. You know, and I was like, why would it Why would it be turning off deck five? And it's interesting that in the next act, when they talk about it again, Daystrom says, decks four and six are living quarters, correct? And so they they kind of corrected it. I wonder if, they, if it was just a, a flub in the script. Or if they actually kind of went back and said, 
wait a minute, Kirk is on deck five. And they knew that. But as a kid, I was like, well, why would it be turning off? Kirk is living there. Why would it? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kirk is still, you know, a deck five is still used by the captain. It's all senior officers. Five. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then we hear M5's recommendations, which are science officer Spock, astrobiologist Phillips, geologist Carstairs. And we ask why Carstairs? And it ends up there is a good reason that uh, he has experience here that obviously the M5 knew about that Kirk did not. Why were the captain and the chief medical officer not included in recommendation? Non-essential personnel. Ouch. Yeah, and what's what's really screwed up about that is Daystrom knew how it was going to respond. Sure. No, you're totally right. There's so much drama. There's so much conflict going on in this episode. Uh, uh, John Meredith Lucas did such an amazing job directing this episode with the, with the tension and the suspense. And certainly, you know, uh, in the last act, uh, you know, the uh, uh, race against time. And it's it's such a great episode. It really is. And, and, and Nimoy, uh, you know, his Spock portrayal in this, like especially in that moment, notice Spock looking at Kirk. He, mm. he feels for his friend there. He understands that that hurt Kirk. And, and you just see it in his face. He's just locked on looking at Kirk with this kind of concerned look. It's And it's just a silent portrayal that, you, that, that, that kind of goes unnoticed. But watching it with these eyes now on these episodes, I'm kind of catching these, and it's really great. Well, well also the, the reaction from Daystrom when the M5 says non-essential personnel, and he just kind of like cocks his head and makes a, makes a face like, like, oh, well, that's the breaks. Yeah. <laughs> two, two things. The first thing is, you know, there's something that there's another difference between the M5 recommendations and Kirk's that are never mentioned, which is it's not just the landing party. The M5 doesn't say anything about where to beam down or avoiding contact with intelligent life. And see, those are huge things that might mess up the landing party. The other thing, how many times has Kirk been part of a landing party where maybe he wasn't essential that he saved the day? Obsession being one of them. If Kirk's not there, we have thousands of gas clouds all around the galaxy killing people. I've located the source of the power shutdowns. It's the M5 unit, sir. That thing's turning off systems all over the ship. That's the end of Act One, and what a what a break that is. We come back, and Daystrom has an explanation. It's not a malfunction; it's just turning down areas of the ship that aren't required. And and, and Spock kind of catching on to it. It appears to me this unit is drawing more power than before. And Daystrom, when he says, "Quite right," he says it like he's been caught. Yeah, yeah, yeah he says it in a defensive posture. Absolutely. That that's one of the great great developments about. William Marshall's performance is that from the beginning, there's something just a little off, like you like you pointed out, Dave. But then when somebody catches him in something, he abruptly makes this point because he is feeling threatened. And the second he does that, when he the way he delivers that quite right, Kirk's eyes are on him the rest of the time. Yeah, you're right. He's Kirk is just studying yes. Daystrom. Just like Kirk is facing his relevance, Daystrom is also feeling his. You have two people at extreme ends of the spectrum here defending their purpose. Can't you understand? The Multitronic unit is a revolution in computer science. I designed the duotronic elements used in your ship right now, and I know they are as archaic as dinosaurs compared to the M5. Wow. Wow. 
he's setting such impossible standards that even he has to live up to. And to, to, to compare your own work to like, oh, well, it's like dinosaurs compared to what the M5 is going to be. It's like, you know, you're, it's a thankless task and you're just setting yourself up for, for failure, not just with the accomplishment, but just on a personal level. Enterprise from Commodore Wesley aboard the USS Lexington. This is an unscheduled M5 drill. Repeat, this is an M5 drill. And again, he says, okay, acknowledge. Nope, M5 has already done that too. Then go to Red Alert. Hi, sir. Captain M5 is already the sound of the Red Alert, all right? Mr. Sulu, phasers 1 100th power. No damage potential, just enough to nudge them. And we basically go into a battle where our crew does nothing. And watching Shatner's helplessness sitting Back in that up. chair, yeah, it's great. Yeah, he's his. You feel his, really uncomfortable for him. Yep. And, and I, but what I love here, you know, watching the scene play out is, uh, you know, the starships that are attacking the Enterprise are the uh, Excalibur and the Lexington. Uh, these are and the Enterprise. You know, these are three names that were familiar because they were all uh, ships that fought in World War II. They were iconic mm. names, and they are gracing the primary holes of, of 23rd century starships. And I think, you know, especially watching it with the new effects and you see, you know, you see the, the logos and you see the names on the primary hole there. It's really, really cool to see other starships that look just like the enterprise in action. And needless to say, the M5 wins easily. The other ships back off. Rather impressive display for a machine. Wouldn't you say captain? ship reacted more rapidly than human control could have maneuvered tactics deployment of weapons all indicate an immense sophistication in computer control machine of a man spock it was impressive might even be practical and then this is what's great is that you get spock pushing back on this whole idea spock who's been the most on board and excited about the technology of anyone says practical captain perhaps but not desirable Computers make excellent and efficient servants, but I have no wish to serve under them. Captain, a starship also runs on loyalty to one man, and nothing to replace it or him. So not only is that a great line written by Fontana, and not only was it delivered in a in a way that was really sensitive, coming from someone who's like supposed to suppress his emotions. But at this point, he sees the biofeedback of his friend, and he hears the inflection of Kirk's voice, and Spock is now being attentive and reassuring his friend, hey, this is all great, but it is not, it's not better. This is definitely a moment where, because of watching the show the way we've watched it, hit me way harder. Mm-hmm. Because we've been watching Spock's growth like Spock from the Galileo 7, he would never be able to say this. Absolutely. Spock, Spock had to go through City on the Edge of Forever. Spock had to go through a mock time and uh, this side of paradise and all these experiences to give him the sensitivity to be able to say this. And frankly, the or him, if you just ended it with nothing can replace the captain, you know, or nothing can replace the loyalty, that'd be one thing. But when he says nothing can replace it or him, that is I love you. Yeah, that that is what that moment is. It really totally. hit me. Wow, that's really touching. <laughs> and again, Kirk says, "Secure from general quarters." No, M five already did it. And Uhura's look there. Yeah, yeah when Uhura, Kirk says well, that. At least, at least Uhura is still, uh, you know, able to sort of do our job a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. 
Our compliments to the M5 unit and regards to Captain Dunzel. Ouch. There is a huge reaction from Shatner, which I wish he didn't have. I wish it played out more in the because it's the reaction shots. It's Sulu and Chekhov and them all looking. That that sells it much That's more than, part, yeah. than the physical like movement that I just did for Music. everyone to see. Yeah. Dunsel. The blazes is Captain Dunce. And Kirk's heading out. What does it mean, Jeff? Kirk says nothing, turns to Spock. What does it mean? Dunsel, Doctor. Is a term used by midshipmen at Starfleet Academy. It refers to a part which serves no useful purpose. Kirk exits the bridge. He doesn't say, Spock, you have the con. Like, he's just does nothing to hide just how hurtful and useless he felt at that moment. And just to get that final sort of like nail in the coffin dig from from Wesley, that that hurts. That hurts. And you feel it. And, and then after Spock gives the definition of what Dunsel is and the computer does that beeping thing. Yep. If you watch um if you watch Daystrom, he smiles. Oh. Oh, wow. Here, here, he has this slight little smile on his face. Here's a question. You know how you have friends who can kind of give you some crap. They can insult you a little bit, but in a weird way, it's a sign of love and you it, it doesn't hurt. And then you have other people who can say something that was purposely designed to hurt. Which one is this? What was Wesley's intention when he called him Captain? Uh, I think it was, uh, especially after sort of the other perspective that maybe they chose Kirk as a way to kind of bring him down a notch. I think it was deliberate. It was definitely deliberate. How close are these guys to begin with? Yeah, I I can't interpret this as anything other than mean. It seems mean to me. Yeah, it is mean. We're in Kirk's quarters, which apparently have not had the power shut off. Um, and <laughs> McCoy enters with a tray that's covered with something. I'm not interested in eating them. This isn't chicken soup. I may be just a ship's doctor, but I make a Finnegal's folly that's known from here to Orion. And there are recipes for that uh, online. Are they? What's, uh, <laughs> what, what's its uh, base beverage? There are, different, there are different ones. I saw one that was like a, a bourbon-based drink and okay. but yeah there's a you can find finnegal's folly recipes online it's so funny because this is so much the scene from the cage you know yeah, totally it's it's the scene from the cage absolutely it's also it's also the scene from balance of terror yeah yeah um but and but the difference between this and the cage is we're so invested in these characters and their relationship at this point and kirk expresses so much vulnerability ah i have i've never felt this way before at odds with the ship, I sat there and watched my ship perform for a mass of circuits and relays and felt useless. It's making him remember how at odds with the ship he was in court-martial mm. because, you know, the the evidence against him was damning. Like I, I mean, in that episode, too, Kirk was facing, you know, losing the Enterprise. At, at the hands of the Enterprise, and now it's it's almost like it's this is hitting way too close to home. And have we ever really seen in any other episode, even Naked Time, where Kirk just was so vulnerable and stripped of his purpose, like he is in the Ultimate Computer? I don't think so. I think this is much more powerful than I love Naked Time, of course. But in Naked Time, he's on drugs. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like that's not him in his right mind. That's him right. being chemically altered. Whereas this. 
he it, it's so it's the simplicity of the vulnerability and again this is why when Shatner gets big sometimes he ruins it and when he can play things just honestly they're 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 so good yeah a lot more poignant and the next moment Kirk jokingly and I totally understand this instinct can make light of it raises his glass and says to Captain Denzel but I love McCoy's response he stops literally stops his arm and says to James T Kirk captain of the enterprise and if i thought that the spock moment was moving man this one really was it's like your two best friends see that you're going through a thing and both of them in their own way come to tell you you, we love you you're valued it's going to be okay you know yeah so they so they take the drink and the the face that kirk makes when he takes the drink reminded me of when McCoy went to visit him on his birthday in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And they uh, toasted to uh, the birthday by drinking Romulan ale. Right. The other one, all I ask is a tall ship. So that is from the poem Sea Fever, written by John Macefield. And we will hear that line quoted again in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And also Quark kind of paraphrases it in uh, Deep Space Nine. And the music starts, and Kirk talks sort of wistfully about the days of sailing. You, you could feel the wind at your back in those days. The sounds of the sea beneath you. And even if you take away the wind and the water, it's still the same. The ship is yours. You can feel her. And the stars are still there, won't and this is our guy. This is our guy. And the thing that I was thinking is, of course, he called the Enterprise her, which, you know, it's always a she. Mm-hmm. And we have talked throughout this series, who is Kirk's true love? His true love is the Enterprise. Absolutely. Yep. And right now, the Enterprise is sleeping with somebody else. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that someone else is is running the the woman that he loves. And what's so weird about it is the someone else is a is a computer which another person also thinks of as a human thinks of him as their child so we have the child of one person controlling the wife of the other wow an interesting perspective man wow <laughs> and now we get again a hail because we have another contact we're up on the bridge and we find out that this is a an old style freighter and this is not part of the drill and suddenly it's a red alert and the shields come up and the speed's increasing we're now get this from up here Engaging M5 unit. Cut speed to warp one, navigator. Go to course 113, mark seven. I want that ship given a wide berth. She won't respond, sir. She's maintaining course. He tells Scotty, reverse engine, slow us down. Nope, that's not going to work either. And I love I love Bones. Fantastic machine, the M5. No off switch. So, so this ship, the Woden, is an old-style ore freighter, automated, no crew, Okay, so thank goodness there's no crew on it. So in the original version of this episode, the Woden was obviously a reuse of the Botany Bay from Space Seed. But in the Ultimate Computer, it looks very, very different. So Dave, where did the design of the Woden come from? The Woden is from the animated Star Trek series, Mm. which is a, a freighter that was used there. We used it also in Charlie X. Um, it was uh, it was the ship that Charlie X blows up. The, that, the Antares. Uh, the Antares that, uh, yeah, Captain, uh, I forget what his name Raymar. is. Oh, my God. 
Yes, thank you. Um, put me on the spot. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we used we, we thought that would make more sense because it's an actual freighter rather than these kind of weird. Yeah, it looks like a freighter. Captain, what is it? These controls are locked. We can't disengage the computer. Captain, photon torpedoes locking on target. Full power. I love that Kirk goes to the helm and tries to do something. It's like, no, I already tried that, sir. There's a bit of desperation in yeah. Kirk's m- m- movement to try and exert some kind of power, some kind of authority, showing that he's still in charge. And he's not. He's completely out of it. And that's when the Enterprise opens fire and blows up the freighter. And they use a, uh, it's interesting that when, after Chekhov says, returning to original course and speed, they cut to Kirk again, and they reused or, or used a different part of the take from when the ship blows up, because when they go to that cut, after Chekhov says, returning to original course and speed, if you watch Chekhov, he does a reaction as if the ship just blew up in front of him. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So they probably didn't have a reaction of Kirk. And so um, they just needed to find one, and, and they put that in. That is the, some of the weird stuff you do when you're editing that you hope nobody yeah. ever notices it. And they asked Daystrom to disengage the machine. He can't do it. There appears to be some defect in the control panel. There certainly does. Your brilliant young computer just destroyed an ore freighter. In fact, it went out of its way to destroy an ore freighter. I got to say, so, so the way the shot is filmed, you have Shatner on one side, you have Daystrom on the other side, and you have McCoy and Spock kind of in the middle of the shot. And it's almost shot, I, I don't know, uh, maybe I'm wrong on this, Steve, but it looks a little bit like a deep focus shot. Because um, everyone it, it, is it clearly is. in focus. Everyone looks, it looks like a, you know, a, like like from Citizen Kane, the, the use of deep focus. It's not quite at the Citizen Kane level of a deep focus shot. And if you look, <laughs> Spock in the background is just slightly out of focus. But here's how this works, is if you have a long lens, like a telephoto lens, it flattens things and it has a very narrow depth of field, which means just a little bit of things will be in focus. If you use a wide lens, like Orson Welles did in Citizen Kane, everything is in focus and the big clue is size change so if you look at this particular shot you see that kirk's head is about as big as spock's whole upper body this huge size change and that's the clue that we're using a wide lens and that's how you get that focus to be really wide the other way to get focus really wide is blast a lot of light on it so on the set of citizen kane a lot of the crew members are wearing sunglasses it was so bright because they hit through so much light on those sets Way to go, um, Steve Morris. <laughs> that's that's why I teach film school. And it's so dramatic, and Kirk is right in Daystrom's face, and he's telling Daystrom, disengage this computer now. And he is empowered. He is he's being justified of all of his suspicions from the moment Daystrom got on the ship with this computer. He is justified in his distrust of computers that has been set in motion because of episodes like Court Martial and you know, Changeling and certainly uh, Return of the Archons. Like, like he's like, and he's also feeling like I got my purpose back. I love at the end. Cause as you say, Kirk has taken over control. Disengage the computer. Lieutenant contact Starfleet command. Tell them we are breaking off M5 tests and returning to the space station. Come along, Dr. Daystrom. M5 is out of a job. Wow. How good, Dave Rossi, how good did it feel for Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise to say M5 is out of a job? Oh, yeah. It's a great moment. I mean, it's just, you know, Kirk just gets his swagger back and he's, you know, 
he's ready to take charge again. But yep. of course, the M5 has other plans. Yes, it because does. we go down to engineering. We think this is going to be real uneasy to unplug it. Kirk is walking in, gets hit by a big force field, takes a big fall, Shatner does. What a great close to act two. And this is really where the M5 and the HAL 9000 from 2001 are starting to really come closer and closer yep. together. It really is amazing, uh, gentlemen, because for all these years, and this is this has just been one, one of the great rewards of doing this podcast, is I never put these epi- this, this episode mm. and that movie together in such a way. And when I was you know, working on my, my notes and doing my homework on it. And I realized like, wow, they came out at like the same time, basically. And they came from different, different ends of the production spectrum. Cause like Steve mentioned, 2001, that took them three years to film it. And they, you know, they filmed this episode in six days. Uh, it, it really is amazing how that's what people were thinking. That's what these creative people were thinking about the dangers of, of automation of, of computers and you have the enterprise and the the ss discovery having the same problem do you think kubrick watched star trek Ooh, i would love to know if he did i, I would, would like to know, to know that know too he did we think of him as such this super intellectual artsy fartsy guy that <laughs> it's see but i would love it i would love it if he watched star trek that'd be I, awesome i would yeah. love to know if he just saw this episode at some point yeah. of his lifetime and said, Oh, that's cool. You know, uh, you know, maybe he thought, uh, Oh, they stole it. They stole my idea. Uh, nope, they didn't. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Cause the, the, it's just such evidence of, you can tell a similarly themed story and they are totally different. Yeah. There, yeah. There's no relate. I mean, the tone of 2001 is it's completely its own thing. Uh, we're back in act three. All right, doctor, you built this thing. How do you propose to turn it off? This entire exercise is the trial for M5, a shakedown. You must expect a few minor difficulties. Which, first of all, is a big rationalization. And so we go, okay, let's disconnect it from the, from the source. And Daystrom's trying to res- still trying to resist. Give me a few moments with you. No, stay here. All right, Scotty, turn it off. Guy grabs uh, some kind of device. So that's Mr. Harper, who's played by Sean Morgan. Sean Morgan played Lieutenant O'Neill. Uh, who uh, was in Return of the Archons. He was the guy with Sulu in the beginning of the episode oh, who ran away. He but he also was the transporter engineer in the Tholium web. And Harper walks over, and the M5 suddenly decides, decides it's going to uh, access more power from the engines, and Harper gets in the way, and he just disintegrates like most red shirts do. So basically, the M5 murdered Harper. And when Dave Bowman and Frank Poole decide to disengage the HAL 9000 computer in 2001 A Space Odyssey, what does HAL do to Frank Poole? It murders him. It really is amazing the similarities between these two projects. By the way, I think this is where you should have ended Act 2. I think the death of a crew member is way stronger than the force field. I would, but it's still a great moment. And Kirk says, "That wasn't a minor difficulty. That wasn't a robot. That thing murdered one of my crewmen, and now you tell me you can't turn it off? It wasn't a deliberate act. M5's analysis told it it needed a new power source. The engine simply got in the way." So, first of all, is that true? Was it just trying to get power, or was it intentional? And two, 
does Daystrom really believe it wasn't a deliberate act? I think it was definitely intentional. And I think that Daystrom is desperately trying to protect his baby. That's what I think. I think, yeah, I think it was intentional in as much as the M5 in, in an effort to protect itself needed more power and therefore had to do what it, you know, it chose to do what it did and get rid of Harper at the same time. But did it intentionally kill Harper? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I okay. think it did. And the other thing we find out is now it's taking power straight from the warp engines, which is a lot of power. Um, we're up in the briefing room. We'll reach the rendezvous point for the war games within an hour. We must regain control of the ship by then. And Spock comes up with a possibility of how you could cut off the M5. Scotty? Aye. I can take them out and cut in the manual override from there. How long? If Mr. Spock helps me, maybe an hour. Make it less. Which is the beginning. I'll say, like, this is the beginning of Scotty going, oh, I should always estimate more. Uh, yeah. Right. Most illogical. Of all people... He should have known how the computer would perform. Of course, the M5 itself has not behaved logically. It's interesting the way that Spock is observing the M5, a computer, as behaving illogically. Like, he's on to that, that there's self-preservation going on here that is not logical for a computer. Um, Spock and Scotty are in a Jeffrey's tube doing some kind of work. And McCoy is talking to Daystrom and asks, Have you found a solution? A way to shut that thing off? You don't shut a child off when it makes a mistake. M5 is growing, learning. Learning to kill. To defend itself. It's quite a different thing. In the last scene, he said he was just trying to get some energy. The ensign got in the way. And now he's saying to defend itself, which means that he knew it was, he killed the engine. Yeah, he knew. He's just desperately, yeah. he's protecting his hide. Well, and protecting his baby. Yep, yeah. I think he's, protect, he's his reputation, what's interesting, his reputation and his identity is totally locked up in the M5. They're the same at this point. Oh, yeah. Um, and then he said, you know, he, he goes on to say, I'm going to show all of you. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, a, there's an ego there and he is losing his mind. He is unraveling, uh, becoming unhinged. It's again, it's just another, another dynamic to this episode that just makes it like so great. Uh, just one of the all time great episodes. There's just so much happening in this episode, but uh, the, the conversation between Daystrom and McCoy gets really interesting as, as McCoy witnesses really what's at the root of Daystrom's ambition. You can't understand. You're frightened because you can't understand it. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show all of you. What's your take on the delivery of Daystrom's, like the way he's talking about uh, letting the computers take over so man doesn't have to put itself in such jeopardy by going out into space? I think let, let, let's listen to the speech because I think it's so rife with both contradictions in its logic and with Im revealing emotional undertones. One machine can do all those things they send men out to do now. Men no longer need die in space or on some alien world. Men can live and 
go on to achieve greater things than fact-finding and dying for galactic space, which is neither ours to give or to take. We can't understand. We don't want to destroy life. We want to save it. There's so much here. So first of all, it's like, what is the point of being human? You know what I mean? Like that's where it's like, okay, you want to save men from doing anything and say, free them to do what? What is it that men are supposed to do? Design computers? Like it's such a weird contradictory speech to me. You know who Daystrom sounds like to me in this moment? Roger Corby. He sounds like Joey Tomolin from the oh. time. Yeah. When he said, if man doesn't, man was supposed to fly, he'd have wings. Uh, right. supposed to be out in space. He wouldn't need air to breathe or life support systems to keep him from freezing to death. Well, what could? We're polluting it, destroying it. Yeah, right. You know what you just made me realize because you said if man was meant to fly, he'd have wings, is this is the antithesis of the risk is our business speech. The whole point of the risk is our business speech is that's why we're here is for risk. And what Daystrom is saying, now we, we, we don't ever want to have any risk. I want to save man from any risk. That's a good point. McCoy goes to Kirk in the briefing room, has a biographical tape on Richard Daystrom, which Kirk asks him about. Did you find out anything? Not much, aside from the fact he's a genius. Genius is an understatement. At the age of 24, he made the duotronic breakthrough that won him the Nobel and Z Magni prizes. In his early 20s, Jam, that's over a quarter of a century ago. And this is where we get the motivation. Maybe that's the trouble. Where do you go from up? Publish articles, you give lectures, then you spend the rest of your life trying to recapture past glory. All right, it's difficult. What's your point? The M1 through M4, remember? And I like this discussion. Genius doesn't work on a, an assembly line. Like, it takes time. You can't decide to come up with a revolution right away. Um, and But then we hear this other thing. Right. The government bought it, then Daystrom had to make it work. And he did. But according to Spock, it works illogically. And he won't let Spock near it. What are you saying? That he's tampering with it that he's making it act that way why so first of all is daystrom tampering with the m5 to make it act this way no i think that the i think no. the I, I think the m5 is just yeah the m5 is daystrom it is um, i mean it, it has his uh his human engrams uh, implanted on it by its creator so it's just it's just it's in its skewed uh, perspective it's it's perpetuating its own you know programming Jim, if a man had a child who'd gone antisocial, killed perhaps, he'd still tend to protect that child. Now he's got you talking about that machine like a personality. I'm afraid that's the way he thinks about it. When McCoy says that, you can see the wheels turning in Kirk's head. Yeah. Like, how can I exploit that? I, I need to I need to keep that in my back pocket. Great point, Dave. Great, Great point. point. Yep, you bet. Uh Scotty and Spock are ready. We head down to the corridor. Daystrom shows up asking what's going on, and he's not giving Daystrom a lot of attention. He just tells them to go ahead, and Daystrom realizes what they're trying to do and physically tries to stop them, and Kirk physically has to restrain them. Yeah, him. yeah. Kirk, the Kirk holding back Daystrom like this protective father. It's, it's like yeah. Daystrom isn't just protecting his baby. He's protecting himself. And, and by the way, you can really see Daystrom's a big dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and, and Shatner's not that big a dude. Yeah. Um, uh, and, but it, it's totally worked. We called up, call up to the bridge, tell Sulu, hey, we got navigation and we got helm, turn us around, plot a course for the space station. You heard him? I've been updating that course for hours. And they go to do it. 
Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Uh, and this was part of the plan, apparently. That the M5 knew what they were trying to do and sent like, you know, current through whatever the system was to make them think that he hadn't bypassed it, which he had. Uh, and this is when Kirk really puts the pressure on Daystrom. Dr. Daystrom, I want an answer right now. I'm tired of hearing about the M5's new approach. What is it? Exactly. What is it? I've developed a method of impressing human engrams upon the computer circuits. The relays are not unlike the synapse of the brain. This is where watching the episode with the subtitles really helped. <laughs> it's so funny. I, I let the word engrams go by me my entire youth. Is uh, Do you know what engrams are, by the way? No, what are they? So engrams are a basically a, a construct, an idea that people thought there must be somewhere in the human brain where memories are stored, where our actual thoughts are stored that are physical. But they didn't know where they were. They just said they must be there. And so in the 60s, this is it's really just an idea, like that there must be this thing. Today, we actually, and for most of brain history, and of course, this is not my area of expertise. I'm sure there's neuroscientists out there are gonna, who, who say that what I'm about to say is totally wrong. But my understanding is basically we never found it. That they And the thinking was, no, it's all kind of spread out. But now there's some evidence that they are finding specific through neuroplasticity, how specific synapses in the brain are built that actually maybe are where our memories are stored. But this is like I was looking at articles from 2021. I mean, this is like right now. Wow. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing I think is interesting, by the way, is we've been saying that, well, there's no way a computer could have intuition. Well, it's if it's behaving illogical because of the human engrams. Maybe it could have intuition. But ultimately, the self-preservation is is going to get in the way of, of intuition. Yep. You know, like I don't well, think a computer I don't think a computer with, with engrams uh would would think about making sacrifice for other for other people. It it's gonna make a sacrifice at the end of the episode. It's gonna sacrifice itself because of a sense of moral justice. Well, that's true too. I don't think that, you know, I said earlier that I don't think it ex this episode explores all the ideas it introduces. And I think this is, there's a I lot agree. here that isn't, that's not a crit again, not a criticism. It's just, there's a lot here that could have been, that is right. right. They, that they could have, they could have gone down the, the rabbit hole a little deeper on each of if these. They had, sure. If sure. they had five sure. more episodes, you know, this is today in Star Trek, this would could be a whole season. Yeah, um, right. That's true. That is very um, true. <laughs> and right as we're talking about this, we get a message from the bridge that four Federation ships are on their way and the M5 is going to intercept. But M5 doesn't know it's a game. Correction, Bones. Those four ships don't know it's M5's game. And M5 is going to destroy them. We're in Act 4. Enterprise from USS Lexington. This is an M5 drill. Repeat. This is an M5 drill. Acknowledge. Captain, M5 is acknowledging. You know, Dave, I know you and Mike and Denise just like rolled up your sleeves and went, okay, let's play in the sandbox here. Let's take this episode that we've loved for all these years, all these decades, and now we have the tools to to refine. By the way, the, the visual effects that they that they wound up doing, like the, the split screen to divide the four starships closing on the Enterprise, works. It's really cool. Um, but you got to expand on that. So what was what were the discussions that the three of you all had with how to devise this space battle between between these Constitution class starships? 
Yeah, we, we kind of had a, a, I don't know if it was an agreement, but, but kind of an understanding that, you know, Mike, Mike loved dealing with the planets. He loved dealing with the matte paintings and he's uh, so knowledgeable about the history of all this stuff. So that was kind of his, you know, meat and potatoes for this. For me, it was these moments, um, the, the battles, the, you know, the chance to kind of show these starships in ways that we haven't seen them before. Um, and so, you know, it was a lot of playing with it. It was, you know, we had these little enterprise models from, I think, Eagle Moss or something. And, and so we would just, you know, look at them and, and play with them and, and come up with, with ways to do it. And, uh, and again, we were so confined by the length of all of these, uh, right. of these cuts you know, you'll, you'll see there is a lot of reuse because we have to get the action across, right? You have to see the Enterprise shooting. You want to see it hit the other ship. But there just wasn't a lot of chance for dynamic movement, you know, because the the, the cuts are so short. But, you know, we did what we could, right? We, we, we wanted to show these ships getting hit. We wanted to, uh, you know, have the audience experience it without taking them out of the jeopardy and having them focus on visual effects. That was part of our, right. our kind of you know, key for this is never take anyone out of the story with the flash of the visual effects. So it was an interesting balance, but it was really fun to work on. Lestrom, does M5 understand that this is only a drill? Of course. It was programmed to understand, Captain. The ore ship was a miscalculation, an accident. And right at that moment, Sulu says the phasers are powering up to full. Full. That's that's not good. Full is, you know, they were just at one one hundredth power, which uh, yep. no damage at all, but full power. And the the uh, the other starships don't know that the Enterprise is uh, about to fire its phasers on full. And, uh, you know, this whole last act, it's so dramatic and so suspenseful, so edge of your seat, so exciting. There is so much going on in this last act. It is just so great. Our phasers are firing, sir. On the Lexington. Full phasers. What the devil is Kirk doing? I love his delivery there. He's great, and the situation is great, and it's super thrilling. The fact that Wesley never goes, oh, maybe it's not Kirk, is kind of dumb. You know what the thing is. Right, right. The fact that Kirk is, it's either that Jim Kirk has gone in totally insane for no reason whatsoever, and and is in, even though he's incapable of running a ship with 20 people. Or it's the M5. It's not well, the machine's crazy. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, like for for Wesley to not realize that that something is, is seriously wrong and it has nothing to do with Kirk. Uh, you're right. That's a bad judgment call. But if he if he did, then this wouldn't be as exciting an episode. That's so, true. So, right. Just have to ignore <laughs> stuff. Um, and the, basically, the M5 is kicking some butt. It hits the Excalibur. It's firing again. The other ships are moving off, and Kirk goes. Got to be a way of getting to the M5. There's got to be a way. There isn't. It's fully protected itself. And Spock's line, you know, Spock has a really kind of chilling line where he talks about it. It always kind of weirded me out as a kid where he says, It works faster, thinks faster than we do. It is a human mind amplified by the instantaneous relays possible in a computer. And it's like, oh my God, how do you beat that? Yeah. It's not just AI. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an amplified human mind and it's gone sideways. How, I mean, how, how do you, it always really chilled me as a kid. So here's a quick, interesting thing is that it was, I just looked it up. It was on May 1st, 1997, that a computer first beat 
uh, Gary Kasparov at chess. And since then, by the way, computers have just gotten better and better. That's a long time ago. Today, there are matches where it's pairing a human and a computer working together can beat a computer. So they're finding ways that the the human who has better instincts uses the computer's speed and number crunching ability to help them figure out what move to make. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Wow, yeah, that's really amazing. Is. That's cool. Enterprise, Jim, have you gone mad? What are you trying to prove? Break off the attack. Jim, we have 53 dead here, 12 on the Excalibur. Now, if you can hear us, stop the attack. And again, the desperation because now the woman that he loves, the Enterprise, the true love of his life, is killing people. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been really cool if they could have put a little battle damage on the bridge of the Lexington and, you know, yeah. some sparking panels or whatever. And certainly we would have loved to add, you know, again, damage and trailing plasma trails. And, and you know, one thing I would have loved to seen is when they mentioned that, that the captain of the Excalibur is dead. I envisioned showing a shot of the Excalibur where the bridge is exposed to space. Oh man, that would have been great. Wow. Yeah. Captain Harris was, uh, yeah. And first the... officer dead, you know, yeah. but it would have, I, I, but we, again, no, no time. Uh, what, what, damn. what year did you do these, Dave? It was uh 2006 to 2008, I think. Yep. So it's the 14 years ago, you finished the last one. Do you think In fact, do it was it... yesterday? Yesterday was oh, the wow. anniversary of our wrap date. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Do you think they'll do it again? Do you think there'll be another version oh, of I the redone effects? Will. Eventually they will, you know. Like it's, if they it's, re- a, it's a chance to put out more media and, and, and you know. <laughs> well, and and they, they re-release it as 4K or they do yeah. that they – particularly there's a lot of money being thrown towards Star Trek right now. Oh, yeah. you think? <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I'd love to do it again and, and really drill down. Uh, I, 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 you know, who knows what the, the studio plans are, but uh, – but yeah, that'd be cool. But you know, Dave, hearing you talk about like how you and Mike and Denise would like use little Eagle Moss models, like I like to me that sounds like a whole lot of fun. Like that must it be really was. cool to be to be fans and just like fly fly the starships around and go pew pew pew. That must have been yeah. awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it really was. Jim, answer. Come in, Jim. There's your murder charge. Deliberate, calculated. That thing is killing men and women. Four starships, 1,600 men and women. It misunderstood. Something else they did that's interesting is to distinguish the fact that that Wesley is on the Lexington. The Lexington is a different ship. If you notice, when they they have, first of all, a very specific angle that they use on Wesley that they don't use on the Enterprise. Right. They They don't look that way. They also change the chair. So the captain's chair is a high back chair. Right. for Wesley. And they also went as far as to change the video screens over the science station. They turned one of them off and they put a different image in oh. one of them so that it doesn't look it, it's not just like, you know, they're going back and forth between the same set. That high back chair that uh, Wesley is using is the high back chair that Kirk had in Mirror Mirror. Yeah, totally. And at this point, Daystrom is starting to feel, I mean, you, it is getting to him. And he says, I really don't know how to get to the M5, Kirk. I really do not know. And then we ask, okay, where did those human engrams come from? Whose engrams? Why, mine, of course. Of course. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's You know, the other thing we haven't talked about, this is also a Frankenstein's monster story. Totally. 
in addition to being an AI story. It's also the the creator that whose hubris led him to create something he couldn't control. Wow, um, that's exactly what it is, right? And we hear now Lexington is calling Starfleet, and he's asking permission to destroy the Enterprise. And I love Daystrom's reaction because he isn't he isn't going, oh no, we're going to die. He isn't going, oh my God, we've killed so many people. He says, they can't do that. They'll destroy the M5. You can save the M5 if you talk to it and make it stop the attack. Yeah, you're right. His performance is amazing. And after he delivers that line, watch William Marshall's performance there. Yeah. He does this thing where he's got all these facial tics. He's really starting to lose it. And it's yeah. it's just such a, a, a layered, complex performance. I just love it. Yeah, it's great. And it's, it's what Shatner, what Kirk has done throughout all of Star Trek when it's good is he didn't say, what are you crazy? We're talking about human lives. You're trying to save your stupid computer. No, he knows what that other person needs to hear to get him to do what he wants. He says, you can save the M5. I can make it stop. I created it. I love the sh the, sh the way they shot this. It's very intimate. Yeah. When they're yeah. on Daystrom, it's a very tight shot. And and he it's interesting that he starts off talking to the machine very frantically. You know, when he first starts the communications, he's very kind of frantic and, and, and desperate. And then he immediately changes his tone the way you do as a parent. When yes. you're talking to a kid, yeah, yep. you know, you calm down, you don't want to freak them out, you, you know, and he does this really interesting switch. M5, this is, this is Daystrom. Daystrom acknowledged. And then Daystrom says, and you're right, by the way, Dave, his performance throughout this whole thing is amazing. Programming includes protection against attack. Enemy vessels must be neutralized. But these are not enemy vessels. These are Federation starships. You're killing. And then this is the key moment. We're killing. Murdering. Human beings, beings of our own kind. I mean, you could see his mind fracturing as he's going. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the reality that, oh, my God, these are my engrams, and this thing is murdering people. Yeah. Well, and, the, you know, like, he's still spinning on his weird... I was supposed to save the world and this is my greatest creation and all of oh. the anger and all that other stuff. Oh, my greatest creation. The unit to save men. You must not destroy men. This unit must survive. By the way, I was thinking as I was uh, reading this, I was like, man, it's too bad Daystrom didn't know about Asimov's three laws of robotics. That would have solved all <laughs> the whole problem. <laughs> survive, yes. Protect yourself. Not murder. You must not die. Men must not die. What's so great about Daystrom is that he's so admirable. Yeah. If he if he wasn't so prideful, if he didn't lose it, he's true. I think this is a truly great man. I agree. Yeah, I totally I agree. Too. I mean, just that you know, he delivers that line: "You are great. I am great." <laughs> yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. To kill is. A breaking of civil and moral laws we've lived by for thousands of years. You've murdered hundreds of people. And again, he says, We've murdered. How can we repay that? I mean, it's so, he is, he is this computer. We will survive. Nothing can hurt you. I gave you that. You are great. I am great. And then, you know, there's the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> then you go off. <laughs> Here's where Daystrom goes off the deep end. The camera is in a, that real tight close-up, and he says, 20 years of groping to prove the things I'd done before were not accidents. 
seminars and lectures to rows of fools who couldn't begin to understand my systems. Colleagues. Colleagues laughing behind my back at the boy wonder and becoming famous building on my work. Building on my work. You can feel the anger of 25 years that has brought him to this place. It is just really just building to this moment where he's past the point of no return. And McCoy turns to Kirk, and this is why it's good to have Bones, and says, Jimmy's on the edge of a nervous breakdown, if not insanity. (laughs) Kirk, Kirk hearing McCoy's assessment takes that opportunity to, you know, he look, he realizes, okay, this guy's starting to snap. And I cannot afford to let him talk to this computer anymore because he could make things a lot worse. So he's like, how do I stop this situation right now? And he goes right for the jugular on this guy. Yeah. Well, it, it's so interesting because the earlier tactic was uh, you can save M5. Right. That, and that's what got him on his side. And now he's realized, oh, this is a dead end because the guy's, you know, cuckoo crazy pants. So right. he says instead... The M5 must be destroyed. The opposite move. It's so close after McCoy's assessment, right? McCoy's yeah. like, he's on the verge of a nervous breakdown, if not insanity. And like two seconds later, Kirk goes, the M5 must be destroyed. It's like, <laughs> boom. You know, I said he went off the deep end before. We've got to an even deeper deep end because he says, destroy it, Kirk. No, we're invincible. Look what we've done. Your mighty starships. More toys to be crushed as we tune. At which point Spock does the famous Spock neck pinch. There's a whole sequence with Spock here that is silent that I just love. It's one of my favorite parts of this episode. When Kirk says the M5 must be destroyed, Spock immediately snaps his head. And you're on the back of, you're, you're looking at the back of Spock. He immediately snaps his head up to Daystrom because he knows what's about to happen here. And he, I think he gets what Kirk is doing and how dangerous, potentially dangerous, this situation is. And then, just as Daystrom turns around to face Kirk, Spock silently rises behind him. He's, you know, it's just this great simpatico between Kirk and Spock and and Spock reading the situation. I love that scene where he just rises up as Daystrom turns to, to Kirk, ready to defend Kirk, because he knows this guy's going to snap. You know what I think would be useful for the Starship, the crew of the Enterprise? It's just some hand signals, like, I'm about to pretend that I'm sick, that's when you should attack, or we're about to do this thing, or I'm going to try to seduce this person, so you should sneak out. You know, like, just because they happen all the time. But, but, right, exactly. but, those, but the, those guys, they, they were they were so, like, on the, on the same wavelength, they, like, they didn't need hand signals. Like, they were just already there, like, like, like. Mentally, yeah, absolutely. You know? yeah, I got to I got I to say again, if you if you when you watch that sequence, just watch Spock's performance. It, it There's no dialogue. It's completely silent, but it is just awesome. And so we're taking Daystrom to sickbay and then we hear the Lexington get the message from Starfleet to destroy the Enterprise. They've just signed their own death warrant. M5 will kill them to survive. Every living thing wants to survive, Captain. Daystrom must have impressed that instinctive reaction upon the computer. Suppose it's still open to impression. Suppose it absorbed the regret Daystrom felt for the deaths it caused, the guilt. So is he saying that it might have heard the guilt in Daystrom's voice from just like a minute or two ago? Absolutely, because 
he, he found out a lot and he observed, of course, you know, Kirk is a great observer and he observed a lot at this moment, realizing just how much of himself that right. he put into the M5. So now he's going to appeal to the M5 on that level to try to reason with it uh, in a way that was not unlike the way he tried to reason with uh, Nomad in the changeling. Any number of computers from his past. Yeah. Yes, that's <laughs> Which, true. Which, honestly, I wish they had come up with a different solution, even though this one is done really well and Shatner's performance is great. It's just, it's a thing I've already seen a few times. Yeah, it's derivative, yeah. Um, and, and it is also something that Fontana was aware of, too, uh, because she had expressed concern that it was very similar to what happened in the changeling, but it just served the story well. So they yeah. just, they just move forward with it. It, it. it totally works. If I hadn't seen the other episodes, I wouldn't bump on it. Exactly. The slightest. Right. You have already rendered one starship, either dead or hopelessly crippled. Many lives were lost. The ships attacked this unit. This unit must survive. I love the way Shatner does this. He says, why? Man must not risk death in space or other dangerous occupations. This unit must survive so man may be protected. Remember when I was pointing out the strangeness of Daystrom's speech about protecting man? Here's the same thing. The M5 just killed a whole bunch of people in order to protect himself so he could protect people. Right. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> there were many men aboard those ships. They were murdered. Must you survive by murder? This unit cannot murder. And again, with the same kind of inflection. And now we hear the M5 say back what Daystrom said to him, or close to. Murder is contrary to the laws of man and God. But you have murdered. Scan the starship Excalibur, which you destroyed. Is there life aboard? And this is exactly the contra like the contradictions he throws Nomad into. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. What is the penalty for murder? Death. Which is like telling Nomad, You must sterilize in case of error. Error is inconsistent with my prime function. Sterilization is correction. It's exactly the same. But interesting that in the 23rd century, the punishment for murder is death. I have the same thought. Oh, yeah. wow. Right. Which I don't think it is. I, I, I don't either. Yeah. I think, I think even if you look at Dagger of the Mind, we're kind of implying that we're past that idea. Yeah. And how will you pay for your acts of murder? This unit... Die. As it says, the words die. All the power on the Enterprise just shuts down. The shields drop and is opening itself up to attack, basically committing suicide. Right. How would you feel that after he said the unit must die, you heard him say, hello, Dr. Daystrom. And we went back. And then later on, would you like me to sing a song? Yeah, start singing Daisy. <laughs> it starts singing Daisy. Scotty, Spock, before it changes his mind, get down to engineering. Pull out every hookup that makes M5 run. Pull out the plug, Spock. I love that. Shatner's doing it. Pull out the plug, Spock. Great. And then he announces the crew basically, hey, by the way, we're all about to die. <laughs> it's basically what he tells them. For whatever satisfaction we may get from the knowledge, our 19 lives will buy the survival of over 1,000 of our fellow Starship crewmen. The ships are moving in. Scotty says, System's coming back. I can give you power for the shield, sir. I need communications. Well, that'll take longer. Let's cut power. Sir! Cut power. Keep those shields down. And 
the ships are coming in, and on the Lexington, Commodore Wesley says, The Enterprise looks dead. I'm going to take a chance he's not just laying a trap. Wesley to attack force. Captain. Break off attack. Do not fire. Kirk's intuition that he talked about in Obsession being a necessary trait, this is what saved their lives. This is what, what basically saved the day. And this is what makes Kirk a great starship captain. This is what makes him defined in his purpose. You know, Wesley, what, he, what he's thinking now is that maybe there's something wrong. It's too bad he didn't think maybe there's something wrong when the Enterprise was firing its phasers at full power. Right. But Kirk, you know, Kirk did something a computer can't do. He played his gut. Right, right. He followed his right. He followed his instincts. He he yeah. he 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 had a hunch that Wesley would would see that the Enterprise was opening itself up to attack and think that you know this is not a trap because logically this would have been a trap to lure the Lexington in. But right. Wesley was like, no, something is wrong. There's something I meant to say a long time ago, but I didn't. Is that obviously we've been talking about the idea of artificial intelligence, you know, for almost a hundred years. And at each stage, as we've talked about it, we find out it's way, way harder than we thought it was over and over again. It's like the first one was just teaching a computer language, how to use natural language is really hard because we think we, oh, these, these words and they just have definitions. Well, the definitions are totally complicated and nonsensical and built on context. So that was really hard. And then we went, the most recent one is we're going to be able to teach cars how to drive themselves. It'll be pretty easy. We'll have it all done by 2020, 2025. No, it's way, way harder than what we think it is. And right. so, and so at each step, like what is all that, what is human intuition? Well, and how would you get a computer to think and respond in those ways? It's really hard. Maybe in our life too. Yeah. Yeah. And would you want to? And what we've gotten instead is like these little kinds of artificial intelligence that can write the sports article, analyze the medical thing, play a game of chess, but they can't do all the stuff. That's right. way harder than we thought. You'll have to be committed to a total rehabilitation center. Right now he's under sedation, heavy restraints. I would say his multitronic unit is in approximately the same condition. That's exactly the situation I was hoping for. And then Kirk goes and explains exactly what he just did, which I think we all got. <laughs> so I don't think this explanation is necessary at all. I agree. I, uh, but but what, what I did find interesting is, how do you think Spock regards that gamble? What do you mean? You know, do, do, he's so driven by logic. That That's a great question, Dave. So first of all, going back to the very first episode, that was shot when Star Trek went to series. We see that Kirk shifted from chess to poker with Balok. He he gambled. And then just in the last week's episode with the patterns of force, it took all this time for Spock to say, I'm beginning to understand why you Earthmen enjoy gambling. No matter how carefully one computes the odds of success, there is still a certain exhilaration in the risk. Very good, Spock. We may make a human of you yet. I hope not. I think that at this point, Spock fully appreciates and understands and respects and admires Kirk's ability to gamble. I agree. I he see he well he saw him talk the, the nomad down. He saw him talk, you know, Landrew down. Like so clearly this is not a surprise to him. I wouldn't think this is a surprise to him at all. But is it something he could do? Is it something that Spock could do? Well, we have seen Spock exaggerate in Star Trek II and, and again in Star Trek VI. So 
I think in his own way, so it does not betray his uh, his choice to be Vulcan, he's gambled in his own way and it's worked. Yeah, the Galileo seven. Galileo yeah. seven, sure. That was that was definitely a gamble. That was that was uh, a more than just a gamble. That was an act of desperation uh, yeah. that was very human. <laughs> I think it depends on what we how we define our terms because you know Spock knows that all sorts of things are based on probabilities. That there's a you know there's a one in this much chance for that and a one in that much chance for that, and then you yep. take your shot. So right. life is a gamble. But what I think is slightly different is the playing on the emotional thing of somebody else. Yes, you know, and because one thing that occurs to me, I think it's very possible that if Daystrom had not put his engrams into the M5, all of the ships would be destroyed. Because it's M5's morality in the end, his sense of justice that it gets from Daystrom that causes it to destroy itself. Yeah, is that because the only and this is where and again, it's not not a criticism, but all of this is actually happens just because the M5 doesn't realize that this is a drill. It's one piece of, of false information. If it doesn't have that piece of false information, it does this whole drill perfectly like it did on the first drill. But it is the engrams that allow Kirk to dis- help it destroy itself. But on the first drill, it had the phasers at one one hundredth power. Yeah. On the second drill, it was full power. So right, because it thought they were really attacking him. It made a mistake. Right. Oh, all right. Because the, the first one, it knew that it was a drill, and on the yep. second one, it thought it was it was real. the real thing. Got it. For for some reason, we don't know why the M five thought that, and it never believed anyone who told it it wasn't a drill. I mean, that it was a drill. Right. And then we get to what we've talked a lot about is that the big gamble that Kirk made was he knew Bob Wesley. He gambled on his humanity. Compassion. That's the one thing no machine ever had. Maybe it's the one thing that keeps men ahead of them. Better debate that, Spock? I love that McCoy is like, um, listen, Spock, this is the time in the episode where we're supposed to have a fun argument. So go ahead, aren't you? Don't you know yeah. what your yeah. job yeah. is? Bring it. Bring it on. Bring yeah. it on. No, Doctor. I simply maintain that computers are more efficient than human beings, not better. I, I love when Spock brings that kind of clarity about a statement, you know, yeah. where he's like, I, I, I'm saying it's they're more efficient, not better. There's there's another in court martial. He does the same thing to Ariel Shaw when she says, well, how do you dispute the log then? He says, I don't dispute it. I just merely state that it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great moment. And I like that Spock's not taking McCoy's bait. I was just trying to make conversation, Spock. It would be most interesting to impress your memory engrams on a computer, Doctor. The resulting torrential flood of illogic would be most entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) And then we're on the bridge, and it's time to head out. That brings us to the end of The Ultimate Computer. And William Marshall definitely had good thoughts about it. He said, it was an extremely thought-provoking story and an extremely challenging role. Daystrom is a man of science and also a man of great morality, but he's unaware that he's also a man of great arrogance. The concept of reasoning with a machine structured to one's own cerebral engrams is haunting. So William Marshall really appreciated this role. And John Meredith Lucas said, we were able to use a number of black actors in important parts at a time when the television screens were glaringly white. Rodberry already started this, and he was completely in favor of doing this. So I really like this episode, and, and I think the key to it, the, the, there are two things that make it great, and it's two performances. 
One is William Marshall's incredible, incredible performance as Daystrom, and the other is the simple vulnerability of William Shatner in this episode. And what I'm going to be very interesting to see is if I watch this episode again 20 years from now, where were all artificial intelligence be? Like, are we going to have computers that are really conscious by then? Are they going to be driving the cars? Are they going to have taken all of our jobs, including doing this podcast for us? Is that going to happen? I sure hope not. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dave, you know, after not just watching this episode over the years so many times and not just like really working on it like you did uh, for the the newer version of it, like how do you feel about this episode now after this deep dive conversation? My appreciation of this episode just keeps going up. And again, I, I can't stress enough how – I think William Marshall is just spectacular. I think he is one of the best guest roles on the series and uh, just a really, really subtle, uh, nuanced performance that really takes you down this this dark rabbit hole with him and, and his psyche. And it's, I just I, I I just think it's brilliant. Well, listen, I completely agree. Uh, I think this episode... It's it's one that has definitely gotten better over the years since I've watched it. It has aged so very well. And it's it's an episode that that as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate it for for so many different reasons. Uh the way that it is so exciting and intense and so much so much great tension and the full realization just with doing this of just how the timing was perfect for this episode to air around the same time that 2001 A Space Odyssey was released in theaters and that this whole concept is something that that we are still growing into. But ultimately, the performance of William Marshall and the performance of William Shatner, these two actors are so great together. And also, I got to say, DeForest Kelly is also magnificent in this episode and the way this episode really solidifies the, uh, and deepens the dynamic between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, especially Kirk and McCoy. The ultimate computer is ultimate entertainment. It is the ultimate Star Trek episode, and I just love it to pieces. So that is what we think of the ultimate computer. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We'd love to hear them on our Facebook page where we always are posting all sorts of stuff. But you can also contact us on Twitter at Enter Incidents, at Enter Incidents, at on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. And you can follow me at SR Morris and SR Morris One on Instagram. And since we've talked about it so much, I mean, if this was 1967, in March, you would have watched The Ultimate Computer. And in April, you got into the movie theater to see 2001 A Space Odyssey. Well, I think you should check out our episode, one of my favorite episodes on The Cinephiles with special guest Scott Mance, where we did a two-part, four-plus-hour exploration of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. That was a fun episode of The Cinephiles, and I'm glad uh, – I'm so happy to do that one. And, and Dave, like where can people follow you? And first of all, first of all, Dave, thank you for joining us for the yes, first time thank you very on much. Enterprise Incidents. I'm so glad oh, I... that we were able to have this conversation. I couldn't wait to have it. So so where can people follow you on, on social media? First, always my pleasure, guys. I, I love joining you for these. It really uh, – it's great to just celebrate our fandom by doing this. I just love it. So thank you for doing this. Um, I'm on Twitter at underscore it means hope. You can find me there. And that is because in addition to being a diehard lifelong Star Trek fan, Dave Rossi is also a diehard lifelong Superman fan. 
So yes, you can, there you, you go. Can see my, you can see my bastardized uh, Delta logo. That is the Star Trek Delta logo with uh, replacing the star in the center with a Superman logo. I wish I nice. could figure out how to put the Delta Shield logo, the Enterprise logo, uh, and mix it with the Beatles logo so I could do like the same thing, you know, mixing my two greatest loves, Star Trek and the Beatles. But you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. Please be sure to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review of Enterprise Incidents. Let us know what you think. Write a review on Apple Podcasts. And like Steve said, head to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and and engage with us on social media. Engage with us on Facebook. Make sure you share, 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 share Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms so we can keep getting the word out so more people discover Enterprise Incidents and, and listen and really binge the last 54 episodes of Enterprise Incidents. Got a lot to catch up on, and people have been discovering us much, much later or going back to the beginning, and uh, we love hearing that. But there is also another way that you can support Enterprise Incidents on Anchor FM. And Steve, how do you do that? Well, every episode we have our show notes, so you should be able to look on whatever your podcast service is. Look at the show notes, the very top link, you go to Anchor, and for as little as 99 cents, which I don't know what else you can purchase for 99 cents in today's world, you could support the show. Just think of it like a tip jar, and believe me, we really appreciate every single tip we get. Well, make sure you do all of those great things. And thank you so much for listening. And especially thanks to everyone who's been on uh, on board with us on Enterprise Incidents from the very beginning. Can't believe we are we just recorded our 54th, uh, actually, yeah, our 54th episode uh, of, of the original series, which is amazing. So make sure you join us for the next voyage of Enterprise Incidents, where we go to the Omega Glory. And uh, uh, an episode that uh, you love it or you hate it, uh, but it is definitely going to be a very, very interesting conversation when we see another Starship captain who goes off the rails. Uh, The Omega Glory is next on Enterprise Incidents. Please join us. And until then, keep going boldly. (laughs) 